Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. And today I am joined by Brady Swenson. He is the, he's the host of the Syscom Bitcoin podcast, also head of marketing and education at Swan Bitcoin, a company I talk about quite a bit. Um, and today we have a very exciting topic, one I'm happy to dig into um, about a renaissance. It's a message of hope today. We're going to use historical references, which you know I love to bring, um, and talk about hope of the of a better future that I'm I'm pretty excited for. So anyway, uh, Brady, thanks for, thanks for joining. Absolutely, Mark, man. I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, really glad that we've gotten to know each other a bit better through uh, doing some business and talking Bitcoin and happy to be here. Thanks for, thanks for the time. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this conversation today because um, sometimes people say I talk too much gloom and doom and because the stuff going <laughs> it's hard, on today it's hard is, not to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the stuff going on today is, is doom and gloom. Um, but on the other side of this is amazing hope. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, we'll talk about the doom and gloom, and then we'll talk about the hope. Uh, but anyway, um, Brady, just give us a little bit of background on, on what you're doing. So kind of people get a reference of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I am head of education at Swan Bitcoin. Uh, we launched about 15 months ago, 14 months ago, something like that. So uh, we're still relatively new on the scene, but we are the easiest, fastest, safest way to accumulate Bitcoin. We have automatic recurring buys, instant buys. We can do wire buys up to $10 million. Uh, we're kind of inching our way out toward uh, the international scene. Right now, we're just focused on the United States. So uh, that's what we do. We, and my, as my title suggests, we're really focused on providing Bitcoin education. We think that the more you learn about Bitcoin, uh, the more comfortable you are uh, you know, buying Bitcoin, accumulating it, developing that conviction. Uh, so we have, to that extent, uh, published a bunch of you know, blog content. Uh, we publish on YouTube. We have a couple of weekly shows, one called Swan Signal Live, on which you've been a couple of times, yeah. uh, where we pair up guests and, and talk about economics and Bitcoin. Uh, we also do Swan Lounge, which is kind of a fun hangout show on Fridays. We're really ramping up the YouTube show. Of course, we publish those as podcasts. Um, we have a book coming out. Uh, we publish some eBooks. We're doing webinars. So we just do a bunch of educational content, and that's uh, really our focus. We try to make most of our marketing efforts educational. Yeah, I love that for so many reasons, and one of the biggest reasons I love that is because, um, you know, in order to, I always tell people before you buy anything, you need to know what it is that you're doing. Like, why am I buying this? And what am I expecting? And, and yes. all that comes through education, right? It all comes through education. Um, I, you know, education is the edge, right? It, that, that's the edge that you yeah. can get. Um, but also it like helps with perspective. By the time this video goes out, you'll have seen a new video on YouTube that I just finished recording. And I was talking about a historical narrative of, of the Weimar Republic in Germany mm -hmm. and uh, how that inflation crept up on them and what happened. And I, I used that and then I, I pulled the narrative and I'm not going to spoil it. But the reason why I showed that is because people thought, oh, if I would have just you know, bought here and sold here, I would have made a bunch of money. Um, but you didn't understand if you didn't understand what was really going on, if you weren't educated, it wasn't a smooth ride and you would have gotten shaken yeah. out. And so um, education is that edge. Um, I also like to say I'll plug one thing. Um, you know, I think we have one of the biggest asymmetric opportunities in the world in front of us. And yep. you that's more upside than downside. And the way you get asymmetric upside is through having asymmetric information. 
And so uh, I'm working with Swan. I have a new email going out and I'll put a link to it down below. You can sign up for my email. Um, It's called the asymmetric edge and it gives you that information you need. So I'm going to just plug that real quick since we're talking about it, but let's dig into this historical narrative. Um, And I always try to bring that forward. And what does that tell us about the future? And so uh, we're going to kind of talk about this, this Renaissance 2.0, where we both agree. uh, I think see the same future that there's massive prosperity in front of us. But going back, right, we, I think there's a historical narrative between like the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages, and into the next, the Renaissance Age, the Enlightenment Age, yep. Um, yep. that is, a, is kind of a good analogy of where we're at and where we're going. Why don't you kind of set that up for us? Hey guys, let me just interrupt this interview real quick just to plug the show sponsor, and that is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi is doing amazing things in the Bitcoin finance space. As a matter of fact, they've cracked some really big news by bringing on the ex-CFTC chair, Chris Giancarlo, um, and they are one of the most transparent, most heavily regulated um, companies inside the United States, which gives me a lot of trust um, into what their services are. Now, I've recently did a video talking about how to retire off of Bitcoin. And you can do that by leveraging debt and interest against Bitcoin. And BlockFi is the the number one company in the United States or maybe in the world to go to and use. Um, they are leading the charge. They're paying interest on your Bitcoin if you park it with them, or you can borrow against it. Now, as I broke down in that video, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. And when you take debt against it, it's not taxable. It's not a taxable event. You can use that debt for anything that you want, including to live off of, to leverage up and buy more, or roll it into another asset. Um, you can do something like I've done recently, like sell some real estate, put that money into Bitcoin. Now, as that Bitcoin price has risen, I'm able to borrow against it and go back and buy the same real estate or something similar. And I still own the Bitcoin and I also own the new asset as well. Lots of ways you can do this. um, And BlockFi is the company that I recommend. Down in the description, I have a link that you can click on. If you choose to use that link, you can earn up to $250 in Bitcoin just for using that link. So check out BlockFi now. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the era that we're in right now is not... Uh, an aberration of history. We've had eras of fiat money all throughout history. We've had eras of sound money all throughout history. And it's a pendulum that sort of swings back and forth. And studying that history really gives us some insight into what's coming next. Uh, and, And so one of the eras that I have really liked to take a look at is the Roman Empire. And One of the things I've learned through studying Bitcoin is that money is the foundation of civilization. It is the way that we advance uh, civilization. We create technologies because we communicate our needs, our wants to other people. And those, the, the way that we effectively and efficiently communicate those needs and wants, especially over long distances of space and, and, and over time as they accumulate generation after generation is with money, is with prices. So we set a value on certain solutions um, by a price, at a price, mm-hmm. and we, we establish uh, that price. So that's really a communication. It's a language. And that language lays the foundation of our civilization, the way we advance over time. Um, So the quality of our money matters very much. And of course, when we talk, when keep in mind, of course, as we're talking about this, there's a lot of variables that go into the, you know, rise and fall of empires. But like I said, this is the foundational cause, right? Uh, And so... And and that's because just just to dig and and just to dig in, sorry to interrupt, but uh, just to kind of help you help you set that base. um, 
if if price signal if mon money works as price signal and that is communication and so right. of course it's it's obvious to anybody that if you can't communicate properly you can't coordinate and you can't grow and so um that's why you know countries are formed and they have their own language and they can all work together um mm -hmm. and so that's just uh yeah so when that communication gets messed up then you, you can't function together yeah exactly yeah uh it, it's just uh it's more efficient to have uh one language when it comes to uh markets and right. economies and uh you know that's sort of the the tower of babel story from the bible and yep. uh this era where we've had you know nationally enforced fiat monies it's it hasn't allowed the you know global economy to operate efficiently uh there's just these there's a lot of uh noise in the signal and the, the promise of bitcoin is that we're going to really make that signal a lot clearer and uh, we have, you know, the, the technology it's built upon uh, is a global communications technology and not, coincident, uh, not coincidentally, uh, the way that the language of money is now going to be spread uh, instantaneously across the world in the same, same voice, the same language, the same code, uh, I think will, you know, lead to what we're going to, uh, you know, talk about here is, is the, a renaissance. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's look at the Roman empire as kind of instructive and then going through the middle ages and then to the Renaissance. So the Roman empire, uh, was extremely successful. Um, and it was based on a, a money called the, it was a gold, uh, coin called the Arius. And this was sort of the international settlement money. Uh, and it was first minted by Julius Caesar. Uh, and it, uh, it was eight uh, grams of pure gold. Um, and, Eventually, over time, uh, it became, uh, you know, it, there was a, a decision made by a Roman emperor to reduce it to 6.5 grams of gold. Uh, that was at the kind of the beginning of the second century to fund uh, empirical expansion and wars. And then it was uh, replaced by a 4.5 gram uh, solidus, uh, where they renamed the coin because they had debased it. Um, so the purity of the coin itself, the purity of it was never debased, but the weight of it was debased as uh, government spending began outpacing revenues. Right. Uh, and this went on for centuries. Now, there was a complement to these gold coins. And like I said, those gold coins were international settlement, big nation states and empires settling between each other, large merchants, et cetera. Uh, but there was a silver coin for your you know, everyday person. And... Um, the you know deflation or debasement of the gold coins, the Arius and the Solidus, really paled in comparison to what happened to the denarius, right. um, which you know makes makes sense. It's sort of a, a cancel on effect. The money that you know the everyday guy was was using suffered you know, the most debasement, and we're seeing that today as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so. Um... And then, and then tell us about the denarius. Let's, let's talk about the denarius. Then I want to dig into that a bit. So then the denarius was okay. a silver coin. And yep. uh, or also, I mean, the same thing happened where that got debased. And um, yep. I guess the parallel that I'd like to pull just from this segment before we keep going uh, mm -hmm. so people can understand this historical narrative is that uh, most people probably know about the Roman Empire. And they you know, basically kind of took over the world at that point, uh, at that yeah. point in time. And uh, as they needed to continue to grow, to continue to increase their empire, they needed more money. Right. But they didn't have any more money. So what did they do? They debased it, which means they took a big coin and made it a small coin. By making it smaller, they got more. Right. Same thing happened with the denarius, right? It used to be 
full silver, then it was 90% silver, which gave them 10% more money, 80%, et cetera. And so the narrative that I like to pull that historical reference is just that they needed more money to expand the empire and continue their social programs. They didn't have it. So they just made the money worth less and less and less. And so we exactly. obviously can see that parallel today. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, just don't have the revenues coming in and taxes are unpopular and they were back then as well led to uprisings and a lot of complaints. And um, so the easier way to tax, the easier way to raise more uh, revenue for the the government or the empire is just to debase the money. Uh, And that sort of um, insidious tax is a lot easier to kind of sneak past uh, the populace. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the denarius uh, began as four and a half grams of silver and it stayed that way for centuries under the Roman Empire. And this helped, uh, you know, not coincidentally, it was a fundamental, it was a foundation of civilization for the Roman Empire. And it was uh, very healthy for trade, for commerce, for um, artisans, uh, producers of solutions to the needs and wants of other Roman citizens. Um, and they could rely on that to be a consistent uh, measurement of value over over centuries. So, um, as Rome as Rome began to grow, the Roman Empire began to grow. Uh, kind of started at the top with the debasement of the Arius, um, but then uh, base metals started being combined. It's another way to debase money. Uh, base metals that were uh, more common uh, in in the in I guess the Earth's surface then silver began to be mixed in with the coins. So they would have copper cores, for instance, uh, or they would be blended with silver. Um, and so throughout the first uh, century the, uh, uh, AD, the uh, denarius was debased in just 100 years by uh, over uh, 95%. So right. uh, it was by 350 AD, uh, it was all but worthless, um, had an exchange rate of 4,600,000 denarius to a gold solidus. So they experienced what you talked about in your previous video, uh, inflation, Weimar Republic-like inflation, caused economic chaos uh, and the population of Rome, which was uh, at one point a peak of about a million inhabitants, uh, probably uh, if not, you know, the largest city on the planet, if not the, you know, if not the largest, there was probably some competition from, from Eastern empires as well. But um, by the fifth century, uh, 100, 150 years after the hyperinflation, the denarius, it was down to 50,000 people. Uh, it really just destroyed the empire. And uh, one phrase that I like from this era uh, to use is, it comes from is bread and circuses. Yeah. And it means that it came from a poet, a Roman poet. It means offerings like benefits or entertainments that are intended to placate, you know, or the discontent um, and the, uh, you know, the, I guess just distract from the policies and failures uh, economically and monetarily yeah. Yeah. Uh, that the you know empire has inflicted. Yeah. That's a great, that's, that's a great piece to kind of su- kind of stop right there because yeah. um, kind of get that historical perspective again. So the Roman, the Roman Republic saw massive prosperity. They had a good sound money. They were able to freely trade, which allowed people to specialize and get good at what they were doing. So then there was, you know, all these new things that were created and, and, and inventions, whatnot. 
But as the Roman Empire started to decline, debasing their currency, it started falling apart, not just from a monetary standpoint, but even from a societal standpoint. Yeah. And so to your point about the bread and circuses, um, the, the, the government changed to where they used to rotate in and out all the time to keep people kind of fresh. And then they got to lifetime politicians and we saw massive corruption that started happening. Yeah. Sound familiar. Um, then we had lots of people that had, you know, money problems and they were very unhappy. And so they created these bread and circuses, bread being welfare, circuses being entertainment. Well, if we yeah. give the people bread and we keep them entertained, maybe we'll keep them at bay a little bit. And does that sound familiar again, right? Um, so yeah. that's a good historical perspective. And then uh, what happened after that? Well, I, that was, uh, we plunged into the dark ages uh, right. after that. And, uh, you know, the, the empire broke up. Uh, the sort of knowledge of why that happened was sort of lost to history. Uh, and the ideas of, of money uh, were, sort of, were sort of lost. There was all kinds of infighting. Uh, the, you know, ability to establish uh, commerce again was uh took took quite quite some time um yeah. so so yeah it was it was you know obviously a dark time it's called the dark ages for a reason yeah uh and then we emerged from it and we can we can talk about some of the reasons why uh the renaissance was able to be born yeah yeah i want to talk about that um so just real quick onto that dark ages you know rome was basically taken over by the barbarians and i think they just destroyed everything so yeah. all that literature and all that history that kind of showed uh why it was great and how it was great before was kind of lost yeah. um, so history was destroyed history was lost um, and then almost like people didn't have a template. They didn't know what to do. There was no, no good historical references. And again, another historical reference is, I mean, it's kind of easy to see how history is kind of being rewritten, like history is under yeah. attack right now. Um, yep. And, that, and that, that's bad because that's our guide, um, as we can see from the Roman Empire going to the Dark Ages. So that's another great historical reference, I think. And then with all that information, all that education gone, they didn't know what to do, and they basically had to rediscover it all again. So they kind of had to start yeah. all over with no frame of reference. Um, so then, yeah, go ahead and, uh, and keep it going. Yeah, so it was born again in Italy, uh, So which, which makes sense that the core of that knowledge, sort of the embers of the fallen Roman Empire were still sort of burning in, in, the, you know, in Italy and in that area. And uh, so in, in medieval Renaissance, uh, the medieval Renaissance, the Florin uh, was born. And these sort of these families that we know of, like the Medicis, these big banking families, they eventually invented modern banking. Uh, they were merchants and they either rediscovered or somehow, you know, through uh, some uh, you know, beneficial like <laughs> uh, happenstance of history were able to rediscover this idea of sound money and how important it was. So the, the, the a thing here, I think, that's uh, crucial to note is that the Medicis understood very clearly uh, the value of sound money and maintaining the measurement, the signal of that value over generations. Yeah. So the florin was, a, it was stable for uh, 300 years. And this was the foundation of the Renaissance civilization. Uh, right. It was used widely beyond the borders of, of the Republic of Florence. It was the most trusted money. Uh, it became uh, reliable, you know, uh, because 
people far and wide knew that the florin was going to be worth the same amount now uh, as it will be in 10 or 15 or 20 years. It was a reliable store of value. That's what made it the best money. Yeah. So another thing that I like to look at from that kind of period that kind of helped usher in that change also was you had kind of a new technology. So technological revolutions, I'm kind of working on a thesis on that. Um, Mm -hmm. And we had the invention of the printing press. Yep. And with the invention of the printing press, we were able to start getting information out to people that typically wouldn't have ever gotten that information. And so I think I, I think there's two key pieces there that I like to look at. One, it was this decentralization of information, whereas before mm-hmm. information was centrally controlled and had to kind of just be told, spoken or passed down. But all of a sudden now it could be decentralized and spread out to everybody. Everybody got the information. Um, and then then that you know, that just kind of snowballed where now there was exchange of free ideas and people built on top of that. Um, And then you got the sound money again, which um, one gave people that kind of that good communication again. But also, I think the key piece was that because it was globally accepted, it opened up free trade so um, it expanded the amount of free trade and communication and information yeah. and ideation and all these things. And so with the information and the sound money, it was just an explosion. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that's an, you know, it's, it comes down to language, right. Uh, and being able to communicate to one another in such, such broad and broadly like that in such a broader way. Uh, made a massive difference. And that comes down to uh, basically the uh, power of language to travel uh, far and wide. And money is just a form of language, it's a way to communicate value. So um, being able to, you know, for sound money to reach far and wide was uh, it really enabled just a, a flowering and explosion, a blossoming of commerce all over Europe. Uh, and eventually we saw, you know, other. Uh, very prosperous, uh, you know, merchant cities uh, in the Netherlands, in Germany, uh, eventually in Britain, uh, Spain. So all over Europe, uh, centers of commerce uh, grew through the trade of free ideas and the trade uh, based on uh, trade based on sound money. Now there were other currencies, but eventually the settlement currency uh, among, you know, large merchants and even, even, um, you know, in some cases, uh, everyday people was the foreign. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, for people that haven't studied this at length, like we have, you know, for years, um, sometimes they don't realize like how deep this really goes um, where it's like, okay, you had a sound money. Okay. Whatever. Right. But like, they don't understand like all the effects of money and like what sound money is. And so um, it really comes down to, you know, when I have a way to store my energy to be used at a later date, um, it changes my mindset. So I have like this longer term perspective, but then it allows me to go pursue other things that could be a benefit to other people. Mm -hmm. So I could invent a new, you know, a new technology or, or whatever. And then because that, that, that money, that communication is universal. So just like, you know, English and Spanish don't match up, but, but the money does. Right. And so um, now you're sharing those ideas with even more people. So if I'm Mm -hmm. forced to just, you know, work 12 hours a day just to survive and get my food and get my clothes, I don't have any time to communicate and share ideas and invent, but when I can, um, it's just, it's just hard to even, uh, comprehend or, or state like how powerful that is. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, again, it, that's how civilization advances. 
And right. the faster that can happen, the more efficiently that can happen, the faster civilization can advance and how, and the faster it can spread to everyone, right? We mm -hmm. often say that the future is here. It's not evenly distributed yet. Um, that's been the case for a long time. And there's still lots of people around the world that are waiting for the benefits of technologies that have been around for decades that, you know, more privileged societies have had access to. And what yeah. we're seeing now with like the internet and what I hope will happen, uh, you know, and be aided by, uh, by Bitcoin is the uh, access to uh, the, the means, uh, of, uh, of make, taking advantage of the information that's available in, you know, in a, in a growing number of pockets, you know, literal yeah. pockets, people's pockets around the world, uh, in the form of, you know, internet enabled devices. Yeah. Um, so these, these people will have a way now to receive money through those devices over the internet that they will actually be able to hold in, you know, in a self-sovereign way, and not and know that it's not going to be debased, confiscated, and they can rely on it to uh, grow some wealth for their family and yeah. and pass it along and make your family uh, richer and richer over time. And this is what we used to call the American dream. Uh, right. This is the first generation now, I think, in the history of America that will be uh, financially, uh, in terms of wealth, uh, worse off than the previous generation. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's not yeah. the way it's supposed to be. Hey, sorry to interrupt this video. Just one more time. I'm not running Google ads, so it's actually way less interruption than I normally would have on a video. Um, and that's because it's sponsored by BlockFi. Um, they are opening up the world of Bitcoin and financial products, offering to pay you interest on your Bitcoin, um, better than owning a rental property that you have to manage and control and have the risks. You can just earn interest on it or you can leverage against it. Now, I plan to hold my Bitcoin forever and literally never sell my Bitcoin. So how do you do that? Well, if I need money, I don't want to sell that Bitcoin. I'm going to pay tax on it. All right. I'm going to end up with less and I don't have the Bitcoin anymore. So a better way to do it is to borrow against the Bitcoin. So I've put all my money into Bitcoin. If I want to buy a car or I want to buy a house, I can borrow against it at very, very low competitive rates, get my house, get my car, whatever that may be, and get to keep the Bitcoin. Now, I've done a whole video on this. Uh, you can find it. I'll link it down in the description below how to retire off of Bitcoin without paying taxes. And you can do that with BlockFi services. Um, I'll, I'll link to the video down below. I'm also going to put a link to BlockFi. If you choose to click on that link to check them out, you can earn up to $250 in free Bitcoin just for using that link. And that's it. Let's go ahead and get back to the interview. So if we go back and take some of those historical reference we kind of set up and then kind of look at how that fits kind of into more uh, now times. One thing that catches me is that, you know, um, like I said, the Roman Empire kind of had this figured out and then the barbarians kind of destroyed all that and they kind of lost their way. And I look at like stuff like the founding fathers wrote down for us. Like yeah. they told us, they, they put down warnings and they were so smart, right? They didn't have, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have social media. So all they yep. did was sit and read and like converse all day. And so they had yep. all this time to think about philosophy and they studied, you know, Greek and Roman history. But um, like I said, they yeah. left all these warnings for us. And it seems like we've lost our way. We've lost all that information and, and maybe even purposely not being shared. Yeah, uh, perhaps uh, certainly because there's a lot of uh, power in the, uh, in the printing press and controlling right. it. So yeah, it certainly would be a massive incentive to uh, keep that information away from yeah. the general public. I think, 
I think, I can't remember who it was. Uh, maybe it was Henry Ford who said that if people understood the way the banking system worked, there'd be riots in the street by tomorrow. Yeah. Before uh, morning, you know? he said, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, there's the, the founding fathers. Um, there were many of them who were adamantly against central control of money, yeah. adamantly against paper money, uh, meaning because they knew that by uh, allowing someone to print paper money, that it would be easily debased. George Washington uh, wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson uh, about just a, in very, very stark language, basically that, you know, paper money has done, you know, ever as it will do in your colony, uh, in basically your state before it was a state, and yeah. which is uh, to lead to every uh, down every road of ruin, uh, yeah. you know, so yeah, there's, there's uh, Alexander Hamilton as well. Um, so very much against central banking, there was uh, heated debates about including it in the constitution to forbid central banking. It didn't yeah. happen. Um, and we went back and forth. There were uh, wars, you know, basically yeah. major battles, intellectual battles, and sometimes even physical battles over the establishments and, uh, you know, the destruction of central banking uh, up until 1913 when, right. uh, when we, you know, established Federal Reserve. Yeah, yeah. If you study that history, you'll see that the central bank was established and destroyed multiple times before it finally took hold, as you said, in 1913. And uh, yeah, so many quotes, I can't remember them off the top of my head. But I mean, I think Jefferson said, like, uh, central banks were more dangerous than standing armies. Uh, right. We talked about how um, it would enslave us, how it would enslave our children. Um, and yeah. so they told us and they warned us. And now here we are trying to figure this out again. So kind of like, like what happened. But um, uh, now shifting to a little bit of hope, um, I think we are starting to see this new Renaissance 2.0 setting up, and it, and it does yep. give me great hope. Um, one of the big catalysts, so if we go back, I, I think the two pieces from the Dark Ages to the Renaissance were both information education and sound money. And so if we look at the F information education piece, I think we have, um, you know, we had the explosion of the internet which right. is kind of similar to the printing press. Now the printing press Absolutely. kind of preceded the Renaissance, mm -hmm. sort of like the internet has preceded what's happening, but you know, we're seeing people. I mean, people are watching this right now. Like what the yeah. heck? Like, why are people interested right. in this? People are using the word fiat. Like nobody used the word fiat before, right? It's nobody true. cared about the history of money, but all of a sudden now, there's a renewed interest that I'm excited for. And there's this free flow of ideas. And I know you're, you're head of education. I mean, you're, you're on it yeah. even more than I am. So let's talk about that. Well, we're both educators, Mark, but yeah, yeah um, it's, it is an amazing time in that sense. Uh, the free flow of ideas, the freedom of information is incredibly important to individual freedom. And we have seen the internet uh, and the ability to communicate uh, peer to peer uh, have drastic in, uh, impacts on uh, the ability of, you know, uh, people to resist tyrannical power, for instance, um, it, the length that countries uh, will go to. China has a massive firewall on the internet. I don't, North Korea's is even uh, more restrictive uh, because they understand the danger of the freedom of information to their power. Now, this is one of the greatest things that the you know founding fathers the constitution the bill of rights has given to americans the freedom of speech uh and it's too bad that the you know the uh 
not allowing central banking uh, didn't make it in, but the freedom of speech did, and that's important. And in fact, um, you know, this is just an inter interesting side note. The uh, encryption that Bitcoin is based on, uh, SHA-256 and other related encryption uh, uh, algorithms, were actually uh, challenged by the U.S. government uh, to be made into uh, military-grade munitions, essentially, right. um, and so that they could be controlled, uh, their export could be controlled, right? And uh, the, the courts, so the Supreme Court eventually ruled that uh, cryptography is a form of language and that it's, therefore it's protected under the First Amendment. And the same exact uh, arguments can be made about Bitcoin. So if there were ever some kind of state level attack on that in, in a legal sense made on Bitcoin, I don't think that's going to happen at this point. But if there ever were, uh, it would fall under First Amendment protections. This is just a language and we have yeah. the freedom to communicate in that language over the yeah. Internet. It's just a bunch of words and letters uh, in, in, in the code. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, if freedom of information, massively important. And I think you're right that it creates this sort of fertile ground. And the, mm -hmm. the printing press created a fertile ground for the advent of the, uh, of the Renaissance. And so uh, it, it's language is the, is the foundation of civilization. Money is just another, yeah. another form of language, right? Um, so, yeah, I think with Bitcoin and, like you said, the combination of the Internet and other exponential technologies that are developing uh, which we can get into if you want, but it's yeah. mind blowing what's yeah. happening. And we have no idea how to process what's going to happen, not yeah. only with uh, the advent of Bitcoin, but just the telescoping evolution of technology and yeah. how fast things are changing now. It's, it's, uh, it's, we can't, we just can't grasp it. Our, our monkey brains can't grasp it. So um, yeah, you, the the freedom of information, the freedom of of, of self sovereign money is yeah. going to change things drastically. You had said something earlier that was great. Uh, it's something that I that I pay attention to a lot. I'm actually reading uh, F. A. Hayek's book, The Constitution of Liberty, right now, and yeah. uh, and I got this from him. But he was talking about how it's and you said this. It's the speed of ideation, right? So yes. it's it's about trying over and over. And the faster, the more tries we get, the more we're going to do, right? And so yeah. uh, you, you had said that earlier, and it's, and it's totally right. And it, and it just made me think, um, if, you, if you look at like the printing press sped up the amount of information that was given to people, instead of being centralized by one person, and I can only relay to that one person or to a small group of people, now books could go out and flourish, right? So it sped up that information. And then I was just thinking about the parallel to the internet, where the internet um, before the internet, we had lots of books, obviously the printing press has been around, but if you think about that one, it takes somebody, you know, potentially years to research and write a book. Yeah. And then it could take me weeks or months or however long to read a book. So like how, sure. how, how, how fast that is now is faster than me having to travel to talk to somebody word of mouth. Right. And it got to more people, but then think yeah. about the speed difference in the internet. Yeah. And also the way that we get information. Now I love books and I've read thousands of books and I still read books. I'm reading Hayek's book right now. I'm actually working on like three, three or four books right now. Um, yeah. But um, uh, my education shifted a lot and uh, you know, shifted from for a while. I didn't read books for a couple of years and it was all podcasts and like YouTube mm -hmm. videos. So it yeah. was even, and, and part of the reason why is because it's faster, more relevant information. And so it just yeah. kind of speeds that up. So that's what the information or the internet really did. And instead of just having to go to a bookstore that had limited selection of books, 
it's opened up the whole world back to that kind of uh, free trade, kind of like what happened in the in the Renaissance, where the whole right. world was able to kind of freely exchange. Um, so the internet is that times a million <laughs> or whatever, yes. right? I mean, right. it's way faster. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's uh, the point you make about how. Uh, you know, books are sort of these like longer term ideas, these more evergreen ideas, because books take a while to publish and disseminate. And so they could be, you know, out of date relatively quickly. And then we had the advent of like pamphlets and newspapers uh, to disseminate information more quickly, you know, the relevant, like new information. Uh, and, and now, like you said, like the internet does that uh, instantaneously around the world at the speed of light. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're all on Twitter, Twitter's sort of like this, uh, distributed AP newswire, you know, and we can all yeah. just talk to the best thinkers in the world and we can get their takes on news and we can curate our feeds based on people that we trust and, and, uh, whose takes we uh, appreciate. Um, and it's, it's incredible, man. It's incredible. Yeah. And so it's led to just like the printing press did, but again, a million times more yeah. an absolute explosion of the transfer of ideas. Uh, and, yeah. and I like the idea, um, you know, that, uh, I think it was Richard Dawkins about, he, he really coined the, I think he coined the phrase meme or the, the name meme, which is the sort of, he had this sort of like theory about, uh, memes or ideas that were sort of like, uh, genes, right. That, that would, um, you know, combine themselves and, and sort of transcend or create something new, uh, when they would combine in human brains. And so we have all these memes, uh, which are in, in broader sense, just ideas, but we also have this sort of art form of language that's been developed on the internet, which we call memes. So there's that kind of meme as well. And those ideas are just being transferred in directly into people's brains so quickly. And we're all thinking about things and like, just take Twitter, for instance, it's like a crucible for the best ideas in Bitcoin. And this is where Bitcoin sort of has its battle of ideas uh, about how it's going to develop, about what it means to the world, about how we should communicate that, yeah. uh, all of those ideas to the world. And we, you know, distill them down into this, you know, list of like a couple hundred, you know, maybe a hundred Bitcoin memes that we have that are two, three, four words long. Uh, yeah. and, and so it really helps us kind of learn how to communicate. We all work on that together. It's a yeah. distributed collaborative marketing system. You know? Yeah. Yeah. One more point on that. And then I want to move on to the second ingredient, which is that money. But um, one more thing I was just thinking was um, also like before the printing press, um, you, you know, you, you just kind of had very centralized information. You got it from your teacher who got it from their teacher, whatever. Um, the church kind of held a monopoly over religion. And then the people got the Bibles and they said, wait a minute, this is not what it says. Um, but it was the decentralizing of the information. And then yeah. um, if we look at the internet, it's decentralized information times a million again. Um, yeah. So that's super powerful. And then we have another technology that's even decentralized even more. And so that takes us back to the ne the second ingredient, which turbocharges when you add these two together, it's, uh, you know, they compound. Um, and that that is that money. So we have now for the first time, a new technology that I think is, it's much bigger than money, uh, right? I mean, it's yeah. much bigger than money. It's, um, it's, 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 in my opinion, and what I'm working on this thesis, it's, it's a technological revolution that will change the way humanity works. It's not a new technology. Yeah. It's a technological revolution. Um, and so calling it money is, is too small, but to the point of what we're talking about, it's, it's borderless, right? So it's global and it can yep. speed up that free exchange of information and trade. And so, um, yeah, so let's, I mean, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin is, 
the implications of it is are incredibly deep. And that's why we can spend years and years talking about it. We have thousands of podcast episodes. We have hundreds of incredible essays. Uh, we have books that are just being published by the, the dozen now. Um, and we can continue to have these conversations because there's so much here and we're learning about the extent of what it is. Now, the first thing that we come to understand about Bitcoin is that it's a money. And we, and I, you know, when we talked about this a little bit earlier, uh, I like to say that we're all default Keynesians, right? We're all, all by default believe or understand that the government controls the money. That's how money works. Right. Uh, and that's just the way things are. Uh, a couple of generations have come up this way since, you know, early 1970s. I didn't know anything different. I was born in 1979. So this is just the way money was. Right. Um, and, and so when I found Bitcoin, I learned, it taught me what money really is. And I went through college. I uh, had, uh, you know, classes in high school and college, micro macroeconomics, business yeah. classes, finance classes, never mentioned anything about what money is and the history of money and how it should function in society. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> to that extent, like it, you, it's hard to, um, argue against the idea that it's at least some kind of unintentional conspiracy because there are incentives for these, uh, you know, institutional universities, et cetera, to teach this kind of new form of economics uh, to provide this stable of quote unquote economists to write papers about, you know, econometrics and these massive models that are, you know, use lots of complex math because we have the conceit that we can understand and better manage an economy than a natural money can. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's going to fundamentally change everything because we're returning to a sound money. Now I know what money is. So that's the first thing. What is money, right? That's the question that really leads you down the rabbit hole. But then, yes, of course, uh, there's so much more uh, to it than that. And, uh, I think we have, we have a hundred analogies to try to understand yeah. and describe Bitcoin. Um, but one that I am, you know, really enjoying uh, thinking about right now is, uh, you know, Bitcoin is energy right? and it is stored energy. It's well, all, all money. That, that's what money is, is stored. Energy. That's what money is. Yeah. But Bitcoin does it so efficiently, right? <laughs> right? It does it so efficiently. It literally just directly turns energy into money. That's exactly what mining is. So it's uh, it's the perfect uh, transfer of, of energy into money. And yeah. it's it's fascinating. To, to kind of, I mean, just to even try to attempt to show like how powerful this is. I look at, I look at what, you know, is happening in, in civilization today and society today. And so um, back to money is energy. So just, uh, just to set that up real quick, let's say that I have to dig holes, right? And I, if right. I dig holes for eight hours a day, I'm expending my energy, I'm burning calories, right? Um, yep. I'm expending yep. energy to dig holes. I could decide to work an extra four hours one day, extra energy expend that I could hopefully save, store that value to be used at a later date in time. And I want to make sure that that maintains its power, not, not loses it like a battery, right? You want it to be able to store that, that energy. The problem that we have, um, you know, as the Roman empire had debasing that currency in the United States is, um, 
you know, with, a, with, with being able to store that energy for use at a later date, then I'm free to go specialize and be the best brain surgeon I can be or the best, you know, coder or engineer I could be, whatever. The problem that we have when our money doesn't hold its value is I'm forced to go become an investor. So now instead of spending all my focus and energy on creating new technologies that serve, you know, solve problems and serve needs, now I can only spend half my time. Because the other half of my time, I'm forced to be able to find a way to not lose my energy that I've saved up. Yep, yep. And think about, I mean, if you can just think about the implications of that, how much, how much brain drain has been done on society? Like how much further could we be ahead if we didn't have to spend half our time being investors? Now, of course, Wall Street doesn't want to hear that. But imagine if we could just save our money, we didn't have to be investors, and we could just go solve problems and create things. Yeah, it's so true. I interviewed a guy uh, named, named Noah Kaufman, Dr. Noah Kaufman, and he told this great story that absolutely proves this point. He, uh, you know, doctor, uh, obviously works his butt off, went through, uh, you know, med school, seven years or whatever of, of intense work, and then uh, started working, uh, I think he was an ER doc. So that's kind of the, one of the most intense uh, forms of, of medical service you can provide. And uh, he you know, had, had some money, had money saved up. He didn't know what to do with it. Right. And so he just kind of started gave it to a financial advisor to invest. And he just was not happy with his smart dude was not happy with what the financial advisor was doing with it. Right. So he actually became a licensed financial advisor just to manage his own money. So right. he learned all of that stuff and then became, you know, licensed so that he could do what, whatever he wanted to with his own money, all self-directed. And that's exactly the point, right? Uh, he spent all those hours on top of being a doctor uh, where he could have with all that energy that he expended doing right. this, uh, you know, been an entrepreneur in other ways or whatever, and benefited society in, in even greater ways, thought more about his profession and contributed some sort of like new type of a medical service or way to approach solving uh solving health problems. Right. Uh, and, and he couldn't. Uh, so it's, it's exactly right. And with Bitcoin, we have a way that allows us to store that value without having to think about all that stuff. Right. It's insane. And so that just that alone, imagine the uh, benefit to society that will accrue just because of that alone. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, there's, there's other, other ways that Bitcoin will, you know, improve the efficiency of human civilization, society and advancements by orders of magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just, we just can't even comprehend it. I think as humans, um, the problem with humans is that we can only imagine a better version of what we have today. We can't yeah. imagine something new. So we have cars, well, flying cars, right? Uh, we can't imagine new things because we don't have <laughs> the building blocks for those things. Um, but I think hopefully we've made it clear to everybody listening that um, just like history, when we decentralized information, and got a way to store value and trade freely, which even exploded the communication. Um, it led to massive, uh, you know, wealth and 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 a boom for for the civilization. And I see that setting up again today, but times like a million. Yes. Yeah. And Absolutely. So and this is um, this is the exponential evolution of human civilization. So it's happened all throughout history. Uh, I think it's been six hundred thousand years for the hominid. 100,000 years for uh, man as we know it, uh, 10,000 years of agriculture, you know, uh, 
500 years of the industrial revolution, probably a little bit less than that, 50 years of the information age. So I think we're entering now a Bitcoin renaissance, a Bitcoin age uh, that's, you know, going to be a complement, as Jeff Booth talks about in The Price of Tomorrow, a complement to these uh, technologies that are deflationary, essentially, right? They're all the, the cost of manufacture, any information-based, silicon-based technology is trending to zero, right? And if you pair that with a deflationary money, which you have to eventually, just it's just math. You can't have an inflationary money in this environment. It's going to actually speed up its collapse. And so um, you pair those together, the exponential advancement of technology with a money that will just incentivize that advancement even further. We're talking about technologies that will allow people to live for hundreds of years, you know, maybe even forever, like things that we can't imagine, you know, like basically like near light speed travel, or maybe even light speed travel, it's, it's physically possible. So we will have the fundamental basis through this light speed transfer of information the development of AI, you know, AI enhanced brains. Um, it, it's it's crazy what's happening. So it's not just the money, but the like you said, the transfer of ideas that's propagating and accelerating exponential rate, and then combined with a sound money, uh, will just really lead to a flourishing of humanity. Yeah. Um, free up all kinds of time for us. You know, w- most people will have their needs met. You know, basic Maslow hierarchy needs met. Uh, because of deflationary technology and a combination of Bitcoin making it, you know, this decreasing those prices, trend, trend them towards zero even faster um, for essentially free. And it's not going to have to be some government program through the collection of taxes. It's just going to be that way because we're, we become so efficient, so productive, and that yeah. we can, and we can all kind of spread around the capture of that productivity, that, that chart that I always point to of uh, uh, in 1971, the uh, you know, breaking of productivity from wages. So wages flatline, productivity continues apace. They had been lockstep up until the end of the gold standard. So we're not benefiting, you and I and and most people are not benefiting from the improvements of productivity. That's all accruing to the 1.1, 0.01%. So having that more more evenly distributed uh, is going to give us all time to do, to pursue our passions and perfect our crafts and think long-term and it's, it's going to really change everything. Yeah. It's going to be an amazing Renaissance again. It is going to be an amazing Bitcoin Renaissance. Now, unfortunately the path from here to there may not be so smooth, but there is hope on the other side. So that's a good message of hope, Brady. Uh, That's a a super fun uh, conversation. Like I said, I spend too much time focusing on doom and gloom. And so I do like to just stop and think about how great things are. So thanks for breaking that down for us. That was great. Um, That was great, man. Um, I know you got the podcast. We'll link to the Citizen Bitcoin podcast. Um, anything else you want to point people to that we can uh, link down below? Yeah, I host two podcasts. So Citizen Bitcoin has been around for a few years. There's a good 120, 130 episode archive there with interviews with some of the best Bitcoiners. It's fun to go back and listen to that archive. I had one of the first uh, podcast episodes with Gigi, who is a great author with Robert Breedlove, who's really exploded since then. Yeah. So it's fun. It's fun to go back and kind of hear their early thinking before they sort of, uh, before where they are now. Yeah. Uh, and then I also host the Swan Signal Live show. Uh, we publish it at Swan Signal Live uh, podcast, swansignalpodcast.com. 
and on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash swan signal. Uh, so those are the two shows I'm hosting. And of course you can go to swanbitcoin.com and start stacking some sats. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bill, it's that Renaissance money. Got to get some of that Renaissance money. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brady. All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and sign it off. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it.